This program is brought to you by the Idaho Humanities Council with funding provided by the National Endowment for the Humanities. With us today is Marie Stango from Idaho State University. Hey everyone, I'm Marie Stango. I'm an assistant professor of history at Idaho State University. And I work on the history of race, slavery, and emancipation in the United States during the 19th century. I'll be talking about rethinking the history of abolition in the US. This is a story that we often think we know. Um, we typically learn about this uh, in our history courses as students, but there is a lot that we don't know. And there are a lot of individuals that were really crucial to the abolition movement in the United States um, who don't often get the recognition uh, that they might. So when we think of abolition in the United States, a few names immediately come to mind for most people. They might think of William Lloyd Garrison, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, maybe Frederick Douglass, um, perhaps the most prominent formerly enslaved individual uh, in US history. But beyond those few names, we usually don't hear about some of these other individuals. Um, and one of the things that I want to highlight in my presentation are the ways in which African Americans themselves were the vanguard of the abolition movement, really began the abolition movement uh, and grew the abolition movement throughout the 19th century. Um, and so to tell this story today, I'm going to introduce you to a few different prominent individuals and movements within this larger story of abolition. Um, so I'm going to talk about two key moments in the history of abolition in the U.S. First, I'm going to talk about the revolutionary era and how the American Revolution spurred the abolitionist movement. And then I'm going to talk about the 19th century abolitionist movement that really comes with the rise of colonization in Liberia. And I'll talk more about colonization uh, later on. So before we even get to the revolution, one of the things that I want to highlight is that enslaved people themselves were the first abolitionists. Um, the individual uh, that is very closely associated with abolitionism, particularly the ending of the transatlantic slave trade, is Alada Equiano. And Equiano was an enslaved man who was kidnapped um, from his homeland in what's now Southern Nigeria. And his ethnicity was Igbo. Um, and he wrote about being taken captive uh, and put on board a slaving ship um, and enduring what is known as the Middle Passage uh, from the African coast to the Americas. And his book, which describes this experience published in 1789, described the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, so Equiano, along with other British abolitionists, uh, worked to ban the transatlantic slave trade in 1807 in Britain. And in the US, the transatlantic slave trade was banned in 1808. Um, it's important to note that the ending of the transatlantic slave trade did not ban slavery. It did not end the selling of enslaved people domestically with, within the United States. Um, it's simply referring to the um, 
selling of people from the African continent uh, to the um, to to the United States. Um, so this story of abolition and that I'm telling you actually has a long history, and I can point to other examples as well, including the 1739 Stono Rebellion in South Carolina, in which enslaved people uh, rose up to try to seize their freedom um, from their enslavers. So there's a long history uh, before we even get to the revolution. We do, however, see a lot of momentum for the abolition movement uh, during the revolutionary era. Now, some historians see the American Revolution as the largest slave revolt in American history. And they do so because there was around 100,000 enslaved people who liberated themselves during the revolution. Um, so during the chaos of war, they fled to freedom. Or on the other hand, they literally fought for their freedom. There were about 20,000 African-Americans who fought for the British. Um, the British under Lord Dunmore's proclamation in 1775, um, had offered freedom in exchange for military service for those enslaved people owned by uh, the patriots or the rebels. And this was even extended in 1779, um, in which even more enslaved individuals who had been owned by the patriots uh, were offered their freedom as well. Um, so again, about 20,000 African-Americans um, who ally themselves with the British are able to secure their freedom during the American Revolution. Uh, some of them end up evacuating with the British at the end of the war in 1783. Some of them go to Nova Scotia in Canada. And among that group, um, a number of them uh, go to Sierra Leone in West Africa, which is a British colony. And one of the formerly enslaved men who fights for the British goes to Nova Scotia and then goes to Sierra Leone was named Harry Washington. And Harry Washington, as you might expect, had been enslaved by George Washington. But unlike George Washington, Harry Washington did not fight for the Patriots. He fought for the British, and that's how he secured his freedom. During the Revolutionary Era, we also see some challenges to the institution of slavery. Um, we start to see calls for immediate abolition or the immediate end to slavery. Uh, one place where we see this especially is in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Some people petition for their freedom. Um, in the 1770s, there's a number of petitions that enslaved people write, um, and they use revolutionary rhetoric to claim freedom as their right. Um, we also see that individuals, including Elizabeth Freeman, who's also known by the name Mum Bet, uh, advocates for her own freedom using these same revolutionary ideals. Um, so Freeman overhears a meeting in which local citizens, including her own enslaver, issue what's known as the Sheffield Declaration, uh, which says, quote, mankind in a state of nature are equal, free, and independent of each other and have a right to the undisturbed enjoyment of their lives, their liberty, and property, end quote. So this document, along with the Declaration of Independence, as well as the Massachusetts Constitution uh, from 1780, 
establish an environment in which enslaved people are hearing about these ideals of freedom and wondering why it doesn't apply to them. So Freeman hears about these ideals and she seeks the help of a lawyer, Theodore Sedgwick, um, who helps her sue for her freedom in 1781. So she files this freedom suit against the man who had enslaved her. The case is known as Brom and Bet v. Ashley. John Ashley was the name of the enslaver. Um, Mum Bet is Elizabeth Freeman, and Brom was another enslaved man. Um, the case was argued via the new Massachusetts Constitution, which stated that all men are born free and equal. And she actually wins her case. She wins her freedom with the help of this abolitionist lawyer. The case sets a really important precedent within Massachusetts. A few years later, a man named Quack Walker, uh, who's also an enslaved man, sues for his freedom. Uh, the story with, with Walker is that he had been promised his freedom at the age of 25. Um, however, his original enslaver had died and the widow remarried. And the guy she remarried, um, named Nathaniel Jennison, refused to free Walker at age of 25. Um, and so because of this, Walker seeks his freedom. There's actually three cases associated with Quack Walker. Um, in each of them, in 1783, it's declared that Walker is free. And this relies on the decision in Elizabeth Freeman's case, and it relies on a reading of the new Massachusetts Constitution um, that again declares that all men are born free and equal. So this case, Commonwealth versus Jenison, as well as Elizabeth Freeman's case, legally established the grounds for abolition in uh, the abolition of slavery in Massachusetts. What we see in other states throughout the North, though, um, is a process known as gradual emancipation. Gradual emancipation means that slavery slowly, sometimes over decades, was phased out in that particular state. Um, the best known example of a gradual emancipation law is Pennsylvania's law from 1780. Uh, it's probably the most important of these laws, especially since um, the second capital of the United States is in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. So it's, it's the seat of, of the federal government. Um, one thing to note about this law, which was passed in 1780, is that it freed exactly zero people when it um, was passed. So in 1780, the law is passed, but it doesn't free anybody immediately. So this is a very different situation than what happens in Massachusetts. Um, the provisions of Pennsylvania's law are that um, no more enslaved people can be imported into Pennsylvania from another state. Um, if they are imported to Pennsylvania and there for a period longer than six months, then the enslaved person is declared to be free. Enslaved people also had to be registered annually and then the law provided for gradual emancipation by saying that children born to enslaved mothers would be free after 28 years of indentured servitude. So this is why the law did not immediately free anybody. It only applied to the children of enslaved mothers born after 1780 
after 28 years. Um, so this is a long period um, in which these children have to wait for their freedom. And again, it doesn't apply to their mothers, their parents, anybody before, born before 1780. The law also doesn't apply to members of Congress. And again, um, this is this is the capital at the time in Philadelphia. However, the law does apply to the president, George Washington. Um, George Washington, as many people I think know at this point, um, was an enslaver. Uh, enslaved people worked on his plantation at Mount Vernon. Um, and so when Washington went to Philadelphia uh, to his, assume his duties as president of the United States, he brought enslaved people with him. Um, and what he would do to get around the 1780 law is that every six months, he would take the enslaved people he brought with him to Philadelphia, bring them to a state where slavery was legal, and only then return them to Pennsylvania. So essentially, he was resetting that six-month clock uh, regularly so that enslaved people still worked in his household in Pennsylvania. We know that while Washington was in Philadelphia serving as president, um, that some enslaved people ran away from his household. One of these individuals who we know quite a lot about because she gave two interviews towards the end of her life was Ona Judge. So Ona Judge was an enslaved woman uh, who was brought by Washington to New York and then to Philadelphia when the Capitol was in New York and then when the Capitol was in Philadelphia. Um, and we know that Ona Judge escaped from slavery from Philadelphia. Um, she actually ran away to New Hampshire, New Hampshire in 1796. Um, and Washington tried on multiple occasions to get Ona Judge back. Um, so he had an advertisement placed in the Pennsylvania Gazette in 1796 um, to announce that Ona Judge had run away um, and offered a reward to anybody who could help him get her back. Um, so he attempts to do so and eventually figures out that she is in New Hampshire. Um, at one point, he sends Martha Washington's nephew to New Hampshire to try to get Ona Judge back. Um, Ona Judge is luckily warned by uh, New Hampshire Senator uh, John Langdon, who was starting to question the institution of slavery. Um, Langdon warns Ona Judge that Washington has sent someone to come for her. And because she's warned, she's able to flee, uh, to go to someone else's house uh, and avoid being taken back into slavery. So Ona Judge, I think, is a good example of how we see enslaved people during the revolutionary period apply the ideal, ideals of revolution to their own lives and escape with their own freedom. So Ona Judge is self-emancipated. She's never legally emancipated. She never receives any kind of documents that say she's a free woman. So she's in a vulnerable position while she's in New Hampshire. But she lives as a free woman. She marries a free Black man, Jack Staines, um, and she has two children with him. And she dies as a free woman. She's never taken back into slavery. So again, when we're looking at these revolutionary era laws, um, Pennsylvania is one of them. 
uh, we have to understand that the laws did not abolish slavery, and it did nothing for enslaved people before, born before 1780. So Pennsylvania, for instance, had to pass another law in 1847 to officially abolish slavery in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Um, so it wasn't 1780 that slavery was abolished in Pennsylvania. It was actually 1847. We see some slightly different patterns emerge in the Upper South in places like Maryland and Virginia. Some individual enslavers begin to question the institution of slavery, and they often do so on moral and religious grounds. So some religious groups, uh, particularly the Quakers, followed by the Methodists and Presbyterians, um, start to interpret their faith as prohibiting slavery, or at least um, having significant problems with the institution of slavery. So these religious convictions lead to some enslavers individually manumitting or freeing the people that they had enslaved. So they give a legal grant of freedom to the individual people um, in their household or in their plantation. Now, depending on the state, um, this avenue to freedom was closed after the early years of the uh, revolutionary era into the early republic. Um, some states started to pass laws that prevented enslavers from manumitting or freeing the people that they had owned. Or some states start to pass laws that uh, require people who are freed, people who are manumitted, to leave the state. And if they refuse to leave the state, they risk being re-enslaved. Um, and this is particularly uh, challenging for enslaved individuals because sometimes when an enslaved individual was manumitted, that didn't mean that their children or their parents or their other kin networks were freed. Um, so for some individuals, this was a choice between being free um, or um, being removed from, um, from, from your family, from your children. Some of these laws are driven by fears of free Black populations growing. Um, this is partly a reaction to the Haitian Revolution from 1791 into 1804. Uh, the Haitian Revolution was the largest slave revolt in modern history, in which um, the individuals on the French colony of Saint-Domingue overthrow overthrew the institution of slavery and overthrew um, the French system of governance and established a free black republic in the Western hemisphere. So some enslavers in the United States were afraid that a revolt like what had happened in Haiti would occur in areas where there were large numbers of free people of color. Um, similarly, in the United States, Denmark Vesey's rebellion uh, in Charleston in 1822, which was directly modeled on the Haitian Revolution, um, caused a lot of enslavers and white populations within the Upper South to really worry about the presence of free Black individuals like Denmark Vesey, who planned this revolt. Um, Vesey's uh, rebellion was thwarted when the plans for the rebellion were leaked. 
Um, and so the rebellion never took place. Uh, 131 men were arrested, including Vesey, who was tried, convicted, and hanged. In many cities, the free African-American population grew after the revolution. And this wasn't through just manumissions and laws like we saw um, in, in Pennsylvania, but also through self-purchase. In fact, Vesey was somebody who had purchased his own freedom. He won a, um, he actually won a lottery and was able to purchase himself. Um, so enslaved people did not receive compensation for their labor. But in some exceptional cases, enslaved people were able to save up enough money on the side through actions that they took um, outside of the hours in which they were laboring in the household or laboring on the plantation uh, to purchase themselves. And occasionally they were able to purchase the freedom of family members as well. Important centers of free communities emerged throughout the Upper South, um, as well as the North. So places like Baltimore, Charleston, Richmond, Boston, Philadelphia, these became centers in which uh, free Black communities really thrived uh, in the early Republic. And it was these free Black communities that were really central to the growth of abolitionism in the United States. We start to see community organizations uh, become established among these communities in the early decades of the United States. So for instance, there's the African Union Society established in Newport, Rhode Island by Newport Gardner in 1780. And what the African Union Society did, along with a lot of similar societies, um, was to establish civic organizations like schools, uh, provide for the needs of the community, such as through performing marriages, uh, funeral rites, uh, organizing reform groups, like literacy groups, um, groups that uh, collected clothing donations, um, as well as responding to major issues that free Black communities found in the North, uh, as well as the Upper South. Um, so there was a lot of racial discrimination, racism uh, in the North. Uh, free African Americans were excluded or segregated from jobs, from churches, from schools. So because they weren't allowed to uh, attend these institutions or um, attend them in an integrated way, groups like the African Union Society established these organizations for free Black communities. Um, we even see a Masonic Lodge emerge in Boston in 1784. Um, in the midst of all of this, there are a number of free African Americans living in the North and in the Upper South um, who start to um, develop arguments for civil rights for African Americans in addition to the abolition of slavery. Most notably, you have David Walker. Um, so David Walker was an African American man born free in North Carolina. Uh, his mother was free, his father was enslaved, and the law in the United States was that the legal condition of the child followed the condition of the mother. So David Walker's mother was free, therefore he was free. 
Eventually, Walker moved to Boston, um, where he started organizing for African-American and abolitionist causes. He was one of the founders of the Massachusetts General Colored, Con Colored Association in 1826, uh, which helped fight slavery and racial discrimination. He's also known for publishing David Walker's Appeal. And the full title is Appeal in Four Articles Together with a Preamble to the Colored Citizens of the World. And initially he publishes this in September of 1829. It is a remarkable text because it is not only an abolitionist text, but it's a pan-Africanist te text in that it calls for people of African descent throughout the world to unite together um, to combat both slavery and racial oppression. Um, and he called for unity among people of African descent in fighting um, these oppressions. The appeal is also important because it gives a clear argument against colonization in West Africa. Colonization was the idea of settling free African-Americans somewhere outside of the United States. Um, it is closely associated with the American Colonization Society founded in late 1817. The American Colonization Society or ACS went on to establish the colony of Liberia in West Africa in 1822. It's a bit hard to generalize about the membership of the ACS. Um, the ACS was a loosely allied group of white supporters. It included pro-slavery individuals who were afraid that free people of color would help enslaved people rebel, much like in Denmark Vesey's rebellion. The ACS also included enslavers in the Upper South um, who individually wanted to manumit or free enslaved people, but they did not want to live alongside enslaved people. Um, so many states in this time period in the early 19th century even forced free people of color to leave the state, um, to be expelled from the state. Um, so even if there was somebody who um, opposed slavery, that did not necessarily mean that they believed in racial equality or that they believed that white Americans and Black Americans could live in the same space. So this is where this idea of settling people of color in Liberia comes from. There were also some religious leaders that were part of the American Colonization Society who hoped to send missionaries to Africa. So this is sort of in the early years of African colonization um, in the 19th century. Uh, Liberia, in many ways, is sort of a colonial foothold um, for what emerges by the end of the century. So like David Walker, the majority of the free Black community in the United States opposed colonization. And they opposed colonization because they believed that people of African descent in the United States were American citizens and were um, entitled to the rights and obligations um, of any American citizen of any color. Um, so I'm going to quote here from David Walker's appeal a bit at length because I think it makes this argument really clear. Quote, 
Will any of us leave our homes and go to Africa? I hope not. Let them commence their attack upon us as they did our brethren in Ohio, driving and beating us from our country and my soul for theirs. They will have enough of it. Let no man of us begrudge one step and let slaveholders come to beat us from our country. America is more our country than it is the whites. We have enriched it with our blood and tears. The greatest riches in all America have arisen from our blood and tears. And will they drive us from our property and homes, which we have earned with our blood? They must look sharp or this very thing will bring swift destruction upon them. End quote. So Walker's appeal made this argument for birthright citizenship for African-Americans. And in the quotation I just read, he's referring to the Cincinnati riots from 1829. Uh, there was a law passed in Ohio that required African-Americans to pay a $500 surety bond. And if they failed to pay this bond, they would have to leave the state within 30 days. And violence ensued as white mobs attacked Black communities in the first ward in Cincinnati. Um, some of these African Americans in Cincinnati defended themselves. Others fled from this racial violence and had to seek refuge elsewhere, um, including in Canada. And in part because of the discrimination and racial violence of the antebellum period of the pre-Civil War period, some African-Americans did decide to go to Liberia. Um, many of them were seeking to escape this kind of racial violence and persecution. So there were about 13,000 African-Americans who went to Liberia in the era before the Civil War. Some of these individuals were people who had been born free or had been free for decades before going to Liberia, but a lot of them had been enslaved people who were given a choice. They could remain enslaved in the United States or they could be freed on the condition that they go to Liberia. Um, so really this, this is an idea of an expulsion or state of exile in exchange for one's freedom. And the idea for colonization might make you think of um, the expulsion of indigenous people from the southeastern part of the United States in the early Republic as well, right, known as Indian removal um, along uh, the Trail of Tears, for example. Much of the same ideology is motivating colonization, and much like indigenous people in the southeast who resist removal, many African Americans resist this idea of being removed to Liberia. Now, this idea of colonization is debated within the Black press. Uh, the first Black newspaper, which was established in 1827, was known as Freedom's Journal. And Freedom's Journal um, had two men at the helm, Samuel Cornish and John Brown Russworm. Um, the journal itself published a lot of uh, ideas and debates from leaders within African-American communities. They discussed colonization. They discussed birthright citizenship. Um, they discussed the issues of civil rights within the United States. So the editor, John Brown Russworm, was actually born in Jamaica to an enslaved mother and a white planter father. Uh, and his father actually recognized Russworm as his son, which was 
more common in the Caribbean than it was in the United States. Um, it certainly wasn't ubiquitous. Um, and Russworm actually was able to go to the United States and get an education at a US college, Bowdoin College. Um, there, after being educated, uh, he went into the newspaper business, and that's how he got into working on Freedom's Journal. Um, some of the things they discussed were questions like, how should Black abolitionists work with white abolitionists? Should African Americans look for a place to live outside the U.S.? Uh, and then it also included news, um, so stories about ministers traveling, uh, different conventions and goings on at churches. Uh, it advertised goods for sale in Black-owned businesses. It also included things like marriage records, births, deaths, etc. Now, Freedom's Journal initially had opposed colonization in Liberia. However, in 1829, John Brown Russworm, who had been the editor, changes his mind. Russworm decides to migrate to Liberia in 1829, and this is highly controversial. So the newspaper had largely opposed colonization, and here's one of the editors deciding to participate in colonization. Um, this is so controversial that he's actually burned in effigy in Philadelphia because the free Black community in Philadelphia um, is so opposed to this idea of colonization and advocating for birthright citizenship instead. Russworm goes to Liberia and has a very interesting career there. He edits the Liberia Herald, which is the newspaper in Monrovia, Liberia, Liberia's capital. Um, and then later on in 1836, he moves down the coast to another settlement um, in what will eventually become Liberia, uh, the settlement of Maryland in Africa, which was established by the Maryland Colonization Society. And in 1836, he becomes the first Black governor in what will become Liberia. Um, so he takes on this leadership position in Liberia um, that would not have been open to him in the United States. So I mentioned Russworm had been burned in effigy in Philadelphia, uh, and I'm actually going to spend some time now talking about Philadelphia more substantially. So Philadelphia was a crucial site of organization and abolitionism. Uh, as I mentioned, the anti-colonization movement was really strong within Philadelphia. And it's that anti-colonization movement that really grows into the abolitionist movement. Um, so for free Black Americans living in Philadelphia or living throughout the United States, colonization represents an existential threat, the fear of being removed um, to a different country entirely, to a different continent entirely. Um, and they had real reason to fear that this might happen, again, because states were passing laws that prohibited free Black Americans from living there, and because African Americans knew about what was going on in the southeastern part of the U.S. Um, with the expulsion of Indigenous people um, from from the, um, the Southeast. So this was a real threat, removal to Liberia. And this is why the abolitionist movement grows so quickly. 
Join us next week for part two, or head to our YouTube channel to watch the whole presentation right now.